Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome here to Strength to Strength. It's good to see um, quite, a, quite a number of you on here this morning. I didn't know um, if we would have a lot on uh, in light of yesterday being Christmas and maybe some family gatherings happening till late in the evening or something like that. So, yeah, it's good to good to have you here. Um, it's also good to have Brother Ken here with us. Brother Ken is a, a dear friend of mine. Um, he and I get to rub shoulders on a couple of different initiatives, and one of those um, is our congregation here at Fathers of Jesus. He is an advisor for our congregation, so he um, frequents our congregation, and that's a real blessing. Um, one thing that I'm sure a number of you would know about Brother Ken, and that is that he spent a couple of years in prison here maybe two and a half years ago. I think he would have got out, Brother Ken. And um, and another little tidbit about that is that uh, I've heard Brother Ken say that uh, his time in prison was, was was a very special time in his life, a time of, uh, of, of just spiritual growth and intimacy with God. And maybe sometime we'll have to uh, have him on here and, and talk about that experience. Um, I know that you did here maybe two months ago, Brother Ken, you and Patrick, Patrick Matthew drove down and interviewed you. Um, that was quite interesting. And but uh, this this group has grown quite a bit since then, and maybe maybe we'll have you back on sometime to talk about that. Uh, so Brother Ken is here to talk about um, the Moravians, talk about the Benedict Option that Rod Dreher, a book that Rod Dreher wrote. Um, I remember when Ken was in prison, uh, he wrote uh, a write up about like a book review. It was a book that he had read there, and it really had had spoke to him. And uh, Ken cares deeply about community. Um, about seeing the kingdom of God advanced the way that, that Jesus wants to see it advanced. <laughs> and that is through um, communities of believers, uh, just living, living it out and, and expanding it around the world. So I, I really have been, been blessed with Brother Ken's vision in this and looking forward to the talk here this morning. So before we get started, um, well, one more thing yet. Uh, Brother Ken is, uh, is in Ohio with, at his in-law's place. And uh, he said the only place he could find was the laundry room. That would be a, a quiet place to uh, share. So, <laughs> um, but thank you for Ken for being willing to come on here this morning, and even in the midst of your travels, and uh, and share here. So, um, let's let's just bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> Father, your mercies are new again this morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Father, as we uh, come before you, we come before you with in, with with boldness knowing that you care deeply about each one of us, knowing that you care deeply about your church, and knowing that you care deeply to see um, the gospel being taken to places that it hasn't been before. Father, you're not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so, Father, um, we ask, Lord, that you would guide and direct this talk here this morning. My brother Ken, bless him. Give him a clear mind, Father. Father, help him just to to share the words that, that you want him to share on this topic that we know is, 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 is very close to your heart. So, Father, uh, bless each brother and sister on this call, Lord. And, Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. All yours, Brother Ken. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a pleasure to be with everyone today and 
look forward to this interaction. And so I was asked to speak on the book, The Benedict Option, and I'll just give it a bit of a reference here at the beginning and then focus the rest of the time on the Moravian movement and possibly some things we can learn from them. So a few years ago, uh, as Brother Bryant mentioned, a man by the name of Rod Dreher, he's a conservative thinker and Eastern Orthodox, he wrote the book, The Benedict Option. And in that book, he promoted the idea of modern Christians living together and taking inspiration from the, the old Benedictine order, moving into semi-monastic communities as a means of Christian flourishing in our day. And here's a quote from the book. Uh, we are in crisis, descending quickly into moral chaos and social disorder. The options for Christians in the face of such a crisis are limited. In order to resist the corrosive social forces that swirl around us, we must strategically withdraw from public life so as to build disciplined communities of coherent Christian practice. So I, um, that's essentially the, the motif of the book that believers these days need to practice a sort of withdrawal from society in order to nurture a, something positive in their own communities. And I found that interesting because I think that the Anabaptist people have long understood that concept. And so I'd recommend the book, um, the, the book, uh, The Benedict Option, if nothing else, if for no other reason than to just get a perspective uh, from one thinker on how the church should relate to society in our day. So the Benedictine monastery and its monks, uh, they were at the center of the larger community and they provided a spiritual and economic base for the area's population. And the Irish uh, teaching monks, we spent a bit of time in Ireland uh, back in 2010 and in 11. The Irish teaching monks in the maybe sixth and seventh centuries did something similar. They were sent out, uh, maybe eight, 12 of them at a time, and they established uh, centers of education throughout the countryside in Ireland and further, further into the continent. And then people started moving into the countryside around the monastery. And then the monks would be there and they lived sort of inside the, the monastery, but they reached outside the monastery and they provided education, taught the people a trade many times. And then a lot of times a, a community grew up around the monks. So in their withdrawal into the monastery, both the Benedict order and the Irish teaching monks established a base from which to minister to the needs around them. Now, of course, any historian will know that the Benedictine order <laughs> degenerated into a very powerful um, kind of a, a, um, a, a uh, you could almost call it a monopoly on the economic system around them. And uh, they were, most of them went out of business then, I think, uh, during, during the time of the Reformation and around there, because they had degenerated not only into um, like economic control, but also into immorality, many of them. So there's limitations to 
uh, our study here, of course, of both them and the Irish teaching monks. So there's also limitations to our study of the Moravians, but what can we learn from them? So the talk this morning is the Moravian option, and I take it from, uh, it's kind of a spin off of Dreher's title, the Benedict option. So back in, in their golden age, the Moravians from about uh, 1725 to maybe 1830, 40, 50, somewhere in there, the Moravian communities did what Rod Dreher is, is proposing uh, today, in a limited sense at least, they built up disciplined communities of coherent Christian practice. But the Moravian communities also did more than just like build self, self-contained communities separated from society. The early Moravian communities gave birth to one of the greatest mission movements of all time, and they established their communities all over the world. And the question for us is, is there anything that we can learn from the Moravians? And I want to, first of all, comment on the tendency of of some of us, maybe, to uh, uh, sometimes we like to escape reality by dreaming, uh, by dreaming of how things could be. And there's that's not an all wrong, I guess. But here's a quote that from an email that a friend sent me recently a friend who's been on this journey of, of looking for churches or groups that are closer to, to the source. And he says, I've discovered that the restorationist desire for the pure church can be dangerous as the search for perfection can be quite damaging to relationships and even draw us away from an intimate and vibrant relationship with God. So I'll leave that as a, a bit of a something to think about. <clears throat> but is there a healthy way of looking at Christian movements from the past, even movements that may differ from, in some respects, from what we believe? How can these movements inspire us and help us dream for the cause of the kingdom today? And that's my desire as, as we consider the, uh, what I've called the Moravian option. <clears throat> so <clears throat> um, the Moravian movement came to birth in the 1720s in there about 200 years after the birth of the Anabaptist movement. And the, some of the similarities between the two, both the Anabaptist movement had a very strong emphasis on missions in their beginnings, although they wouldn't have called it missions back then, I suppose. They, they were just concerned about sharing the gospel. And the Anabaptists, as many of you probably know, really were the first missionaries out of the Reformation. We don't really have time to go into the reasons for that. But the movement spread like wildfire all over the, um, all over the, all over Europe, really, uh, in the first um, 40, 50, 60 years, because uh, these people were, uh, were confident in the power of the gospel to change people. And they felt the, they felt they were the, the ones that had the truth and the truth needed to be brought to, to the empire. So the doctrinal differences, though, between the Moravians and the uh, Anabaptists, one that Brother John has already mentioned, is the ecumenical spirit, particularly <clears throat> of uh, Count Zinzendorf. So yeah, you kind of get that as, as you read the, the story. Um, and But at the same time, they were very concerned about, um, at least in the early uh, movement, 
they're very concerned about uh, communion, I understand. Uh, if, if you go by Peter Hoover's book, they practiced a, a sort of close communion where um, if you weren't in full harmony with the community's practice, including their, their, their um, outward practices, uh, you weren't allowed to be part of communion. But they were ecumenical and also they had a, a theology of, of the blood that went that veered off into excess later on that really led them somewhat astray. They kind of came back from that then. I don't think I'll get into that this morning. But probably one of the biggest differences that we would think of as we compare Anabaptism and the early Moravians, since they didn't officially withdraw from their Lutheran roots, they officially stayed part of the Lutheran church. That meant they have always baptized babies. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, uh, we're, we're studying a group this morning that uh, differs fundamentally from Anabaptism in that way. Um, and of course, Anabaptism gave birth because of the uh, issue of baptism, uh, one of the big issues. So uh, there we differ. Uh, and to their credit, though, they practice baptism for adult baptism for new believers, of course. They were born out of Lutheran pietism, but Peter Hoover says they weren't content to remain quietly a little church within the big church because they 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 uh they weren't quietists uh they uh, if you study their history and the mission enterprise that they entered into they were far from quietists like the anabaptists um here's where we're similar uh at least we were similar by the way most of the modern moravian churches are now very liberal and are indeed about as ecumenical as you could possibly get kind of like the modern quakers also by the way, um, as I was thinking about the differences between the Moravians and the Anabaptists, I did think of the Quakers, Brother John D. I'm, I'm wondering whether uh, the, the differences were as great between the Moravians and the Anabaptists as they were between the Anabaptists and Quakers, but I guess we could discuss that later. Anyhow, so <clears throat> the Anabaptists and the Moravians both took following Christ very seriously, and they both put the Sermon on the Mount at the center. Because of the Sermon on the Mount, the Moravians believed in non-resistance. They believed in loving your enemy, non-swearing of oaths, going the second mile, sharing of material possessions, no divorce among them, really, at least early on. Modesty and covering for the ladies were taught. Many similarities between the Anabaptists and Moravians at the beginnings of both movements, as I've been saying. The reality is, by the time the Moravians came to America to share the love of Christ, among the native Af American tribes. By the time the Moravians got here in the, uh, what was it, 1730s sometime, I think, is first, first they came here uh, to um, work with uh, First Nation people here in America. The Anabaptist people were arriving too, and maybe slightly earlier than them, from the old country. But the Anabaptists, unfortunately, had lost much of their, of their zeal and their love for Christ and they set about carving out their farms from the wilderness. In America, I don't think that the Anabaptist people and the Moravians really ever fellowshiped much or overlapped, really. 
Um, but Nicholas was in contact with some of the Mennonites, this Count Nicholas von uh, Zinzendorf. And he, he was in touch with some of the Mennonite people and he wasn't that impressed with them. And I'll just um, give what he wrote about them. This is not to cast light on uh, the Mennonites necessarily in a bad way, it's just his perspective. And here's what he wrote. He said, it is not our work to judge these people. In the Netherlands, the blessing of the Lord has come among them and many are true builders of the invisible church. But those of this land, that is Pennsylvania, have been more against us than for us right from the start. Also, they are a small, isolated religion with boundaries and gates. We must leave them in the hands of the Lord. So uh, now I have to give a bit of credit here, uh, just some credits for what I know. And what I know about the Moravians isn't that much. And what, what I do know uh, comes from uh, the book by Peter Hoover, Behold the Lamb. And Peter Hoover wrote this book back in 2005, and it was put online, and it's still available now from Amazon, Behold the Lamb. Uh, Brother John G. had just said at the beginning of this call that uh, Benchmark Press did not publish the book because of the ecumenicalism that the Moravians uh, promoted back then already. So uh, I suppose at the end of the call here, we can talk about that if we wish. Um, the other thing that I've done, which impacted me a great deal after I read the book for the first time, uh, my family and I had the privilege of visiting the community of Gnadenhuden, which is in Eastern Ohio, uh, just east of Holmes County. It's now in Ohio State Park. And this is an amazing, amazing story. And this is where the story of the Anabaptists and the Moravian people kind of comes together because there at Naudenhuden, we have a memorial today of a terrible incident that took place in 1782. Um, uh, David Zeigsberger, a Moravian missionary, had come to this area to work with the Delaware Indians. And uh, this is uh, an amazing thing. Um, we'll get into their mission movement a bit later. But for now, let me comment just a bit on their work among the First Nations people of North America. Uh, the, the Moravians came at great sacrifice, spent many, many years with uh, various tribes, particularly here in the East, I think. And David Zeigsberger himself, I think, spent uh, over 50 years among the American Indians. And um, so he was involved in setting up the uh, community at, at Naudenhutten and Schoenbrunn. That means House of Grace or um, House of uh, Peace. And so um, the, they uh, taught uh, the converts who came to the Lamb, they taught them the Sermon on the Mount, non-resistance. And so these warring Indian people laid down their tomahawks and their bows, and they became peace-loving New Testament believers. And were, they embraced non-resistance. They were among the few groups in America who did that, along with the Quakers, the Anabaptists, and uh, probably a few other groups. So <clears throat> what happened 
they refused to take sides during the Revolutionary War. And the British suspected that they were helping the Americans and the Americans uh, didn't trust them either. They suspected they were helping the British. And so uh, a a pro-British group of Indians forcibly removed them from Naudenhutten, hundreds of them, and moved them further north, I think, but then they be, they began to starve from lack of food. And so a group of them were allowed to return to Gnadenhutten there in what is now Eastern Ohio to harvest their crops. And while they were there, an American militia came along and uh, captured them because they felt that they were aiding the British, which they said they weren't, and they probably weren't. Uh, and, but the Indians did not resist and a decision was made by the American militia to execute them all. And it was a horrible thing. And they arrived at a decision, told the these Indian people, include, which included, I think, 30 or 40 children. And these dear people requested to be able to spend the night in prayer before they die. And so they put the women in one hut and the men in another one and the children in another one. And they spent the night in prayer and in singing hymns to the Lamb, these First Nations people, almost a hundred of them. The next morning, the American militia in one of the greatest stains, as far as I'm concerned, in the history of our nation, uh, they took these these dear non-resistant Indian people who loved the Lamb and they slaughtered them. Uh, They uh, scalped them, clubbed them. And the leader of, of the militia who, who was doing these atrocities had lost, I think, his brother and his father to the Indians. And after he had slaughtered about 17 of them, he sat down and he wept and he said, uh, killing these people hasn't relieved me any. So it was a horrible thing that happened. <clears throat> but uh, this is an example of um, the devotion uh, to the lamb that the Moravians had. And I, I would like for us, if anything, this morning, if we could all be maybe inspired to a a greater devotion for Christ, the kind of devotion that those early Moravians had for the Lamb. So <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the beginnings of the movement and uh, the community life and their mission enterprise, and then maybe at the end, talk a bit about their motivation. So the beginnings of the Moravian church go back to the influences from the Waldensians, the old Moravians, the Hussites, similar groups, and the influences trickled down through the centuries, and especially the writings of these kinds of people. And then there was a, a man by the name of Christian David, who was whose heritage was from among those older Bohemian brethren type people. He was a seeker, and he came from those old believers, and he found the faith of his fathers. Somehow or the other, he met uh, this Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the town of Zinzendorf, he was the, this wealthy Lutheran pietist. And um, David dreamed of bringing some of his people across the mountain to live in this safe area. And Count Nicholas had dreams of establishing a Christian community already. And so the, those two ideas merged and David, uh, Christian David brought his refugees to live on Count Nicholas's land. And the refugee camp and the Christian community became one. 
And there were eventually uh, more and more of these refugees came and the place became kind of a refugee camp and a ragtag people, group of people from various Christian type backgrounds from probably 15 or 20 different types of denominations. They lived together in chaos and a tremendous amount of conflict. Um, they, everybody believed their own thing and they had an incredible difficult time at the beginning some of the land they lived on was swamp land and uh, they lived together in kind of a squalid refugee camp setting. And, um, but Count Zinzendorf, he was ecumenical too, in the sense that he tried to get all these people to live together somehow. And he tried to make peace. And one, one day, at one time they, um, he got the men of the camp together uh, for three days three 20-hour days each to discuss the subject of either predestination or free will. And they hammered out, they put the hammer down, and for three days they talked about this. And at the end of the third day, they agreed on human free will, which was a good, which was kind of surprising coming from them. But um, the conflict and confusion threatened to drive everybody apart, but gradually things began to change. And after the night of August 5th, 1727, nothing was ever the same again. Here's, uh, we'll read some from Peter Hoover's narrative. They began to study the gospel of John in evening meetings. The meeting on August 5 did not end when the women put the little ones to bed. Fifteen men sat on the lower slopes of the hutburg discussing Christ and his gospel until long after the fireflies came out and the day's heat gave way to a balmy summer night. As at other times, they prayed and sang, but instead of dwindling off into village homes as the night wore on, the group began to grow. More and more brothers and eventually sisters appeared. No one had to explain the lamb was there. Prayers, confessions, tears, and songs continued until the whole settlement, standing at the burial ground, greeted the morning sun with David's words. He is the son of righteousness that arises with resplendent grace. The lamb had come. And it seems as though he remained among them for many, many years. Now, I'm going to uh, kind of reflect on chapter 9 in Peter Hoover's book, The Place of the Lord's Care. Now, there's some really surprising things in this chapter I found. So, one of the things that I thought about quite a bit over the years, you know, I, I uh, followed the... the um, the remnant groups closely and was very interested in what was happening by the spirit of God among them. And the remnant groups really loved the story of the Moravians, but I never heard um, any talk about chapter nine of Peter Hoover's book, the place of the Lord's care. And if you read that chapter, you'll understand why these were German people and they lived a very orderly and very disciplined lives, especially after the lamb came among them. And they had community regulations, uh, a standard of practice that makes, I, I would dare say, any of our standards of practice, if we have them, pale by comparison. <laughs> so <clears throat> some of the things that began to happen after that uh, August the 5th encounter with the Lamb, relationships uh, began to change. Uh, David Nitschmann and Kristen David sat at Count Zinzendorf's table one day, and 
he says, we took stock of ourselves and told each other what still remained to mar the image of Christ in us. First, I let them say what was the matter with me, and then I said what was still the matter with them. That kind of open communication and relationship is, is something that I long for as well. So did you know that, secondly, did you know that the, um, the greeting card tradition that we have here in our country apparently was begun by the Moravian believers? They began to love each other so much that they began to write out sentiments Bible verses and wise sayings and encouragement on stiff pieces of paper. And they began to give them out to their friends in the community, their brothers and sisters. And I understand that's where the greeting card tradition comes from, from the Moravians. Third, music and hymns. Thousands of hymns were produced by these people who loved the lamb with all their hearts. There's estimates of in the first years after the lamb had come among their communities and they were growing as communities around the world. Maybe as many as 70,000 hymns were written by these people. Probably most of them centered on the lamb. A Jesus, thy blood and righteousness is one of them. Now I know that the theology there is, isn't exactly Anabaptist, but I confess, I love that hymn. Jesus blood and righteousness um, talks about, Oh, I can't get the, the words right now. My glorious dress, the idea of putting on Jesus' righteousness as a, as a cloak or as a garment, isn't exactly at the heart of Anabaptist theology, but I find great comfort in that. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'm a bit of a heretic. So, <clears throat> um, Thousands of hymns were produced. Every evening, the choirs at Hernhut sang and they played before the Lamb. Yeah, they had musical instruments in their worship, which we don't do, but it seems as though God used them to worship. Um, hymn writers and composers kept adding an infinite variety of, of arrangements, and uh, sometimes the congregations would spin off into uh, like spontaneous medleys of hymns that people started leading right one right after the other that maybe lasted for hours. Um, so song and worship was at the heart of their, their communities. Uh, I've already mentioned communion. They practiced a close communion that you could only enter into after much self-examination and full unity with the brotherhood. Prayer, of course, we know about that uh, 100 uh, year prayer chain that went around the clock and that started not by it just kind of started by accident one night not long after the awakening when the lamb had come people were praying and they had an all-night prayer meeting and it just kept going they never really stopped and then they appointed uh, people they drew the lot as to determine who would take which hour i think they drew the lot every day so you drew a lot if you were among the group of people that were going to participate in that prayer group of an hour per person, then you, you drew a lot and that was your hour. And uh, by the way, they did use the lot for quite a, quite a variety of decisions, including sending out missionaries. And including marriage. Including marriage. <laughs> All right. Well, that maybe we can learn some things from the Moravians. <clears throat> any, any, um, Okay, so work ethic uh, was another change that happened. Uh, 
the community was transformed from swamp land to tidy, well-kept community with uh, over 200 houses, various industries, men appointed to be overseers of the various work projects and building projects and business enterprises. Um, here's, um, here's some detail on what took place in some of their business meetings of the brothers. Uh, the baker was told to make larger buns and the shoe fixer was supposed to finish his work on time. Two women who had brought plums across the border from Bohemia without praying, without paying duty were admonished to repent, go back to correct the matter and apologize. Another woman uh, cooked too extravagantly and uh, she was wasting the, the resources of the Lord's Gemeinde and she was held back from communion for cooking too extravagantly. Sanitation improved. They installed uh, like walkways in front of their houses and and uh, stones in front of the, of the doors of their houses. And they had uh, community statutes on what should be done with the ashes from the stoves. And here's one, tobacco was forbidden. The use of tobacco was forbidden already back in the early 1700s. And here's, they had one over the Anabaptists on that one. Uh, dress, boys that used to walk around only in shirts, they were now fully dressed and neat. And it seemed as though when this special visitation of Christ came, they rediscovered the value of the plain dress of their ancestors. And as they used to dress in Moravia, the brothers at Hernhut now in Germany, uh, Saxony at the time, uh, they, they now dressed in simple, uh, dark clothing, and the, the men wore uh, broad-rimmed hats, and the ladies wore ankle-length ankle dresses with um, a sort of double layer, and they had uh, three-piece white caps that covered all their hair, and uh, they had overseers appointed in the communities to to approve the clothing styles of the people in the community. And they had um, regulations against uh, a bright gay clothing. And uh, they had, uh, it, was, it was part of uh, their community life. They didn't depend on any of this for any spiritual improvement necessarily, but they simply, uh, they lived in a very strong group kind of brotherhood. I could go on into some more of those details, but um, of course they didn't wear jewelry. Funerals. In the community, funerals became joyful celebrations. They had this concept of the upper church and the lower church. That is the saints who've gone on before were part of the upper church and those who were still alive on earth were the lower church. And on the resurrection day on, on Easter Sunday morning, the whole community would gather out um, on the hillsides at the graveyard of those who had died in the community. And they celebrated together. They sang praises to the lamb. It was the union in their minds of the upper church and the lower church. That gives a little bit of a picture into community life. And I know it was kind of idealized here. Uh, they had plenty of struggles, I'm sure. And so let's talk about their worldwide missions carrying the love of Christ to the world. They conceived of the home church and the pilgrim church. 
the home church was the sending church and the pilgrim church was bands of missionaries that traveled all over the world. Uh, in the first 40 or 50 years after 1727, the Moravians had traveled to the following countries to preach the gospel and uh, had established churches probably in most of these countries. I found a map online. They were all over Western and Eastern Europe. They were in Egypt. They were in Saudi Arabia. They were in North Africa, South Africa. They were in what is now Bangladesh. They were in India, Sri Lanka. They were in Lapland. They were in Greenland. They were in the West Indies on the islands of St. Thomas, Jamaica, Barados. And they were in various American communities. They established uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Lydix, Pennsylvania was originally a Moravian missionary community. And then of course, a strong presence in North Carolina. Uh, Salem, which later became Winston-Salem, North Carolina, was originally a Moravian mission community. And of course, they had these various communities, outreaches among the, the North American Indians. Some estimates say that uh, about 30 to 35 years after that community experienced the awakening there at Hernhut, there in, in Germany in 1520, in uh, 1727, they estimated that the gospel had been preached to maybe a million people around the world by their roving missionaries. So <clears throat> West Indies, um, especially the island of St. Thomas now, I'm focusing a bit on that. Um, of course, the, what was happening there in, in the, on the um, sugar plantation islands, it was a horrible, the, what they call it, what do they call it? The um, triangle, something that Middle they, passage. The middle passage, and there was what was it called? The um, where they the, yeah, it was a it was like a triangle. They took the rum from the sugarcane plantations up to New England, where they traded it, um, and then they went off to the to Africa to collect more slaves. Brought the slaves back to the uh, West Indies islands, and that the the whole thing was a horrible. Uh, horrible evil. And so um, there was a converted slave from one of those islands, might have been the island of St. Thomas, or I'm not sure which one, who had been brought to Europe and ran into Count Nicholas. And he introduced this, this African brother to the Moravian community in Hernhut, I think it was. And it so touched his stories of the squalor and the, the horrible life in the slave plantations so touched the, her, the, the Moravian people that some of them volunteered to go bring the love of the lamb to the slave people. So many Moravian missionaries traveled to these islands um, in, in the Atlantic uh, to minister to the slaves. And um, when they got there, of course, nearly naked people were living in poverty by the time the gospel had been preached in 20 or 30 years on the island of St. Thomas. Uh, the people, uh, many of them neatly dressed, men and women with orderly families. The huts had been given way to plastered cottages among vegetable gardens and flowers. And the, the wild dances and the sacrifices of animals to the spirits, they'd now given way to weddings and funerals held in peace. But all this came 
established a strong Christian community there in the island of St. Thomas and two or three other islands, but it came at a great price. By 1768, this would have been uh, 30, 35 years after the first pilgrims from Moravia came there, uh, 79 missionaries that were sent out from Hernhut had lost their lives. That's like almost 80 people had missionaries had died reaching out to this one island. But for everyone that died, there were 60 baptized converts. And within 50 years, there were nearly 9,000 African slaves only on St. Thomas who had found the lamb. So Greenland is a, is a surprising story. Who would ever think of going to Greenland for a mission outreach, but they went there early on and, um, and um, within, I don't know, I think it was maybe 20 years or so, also at great, great sacrifice, uh, they had built a, a structure that would hold um, 300 of the Inuit people, Green, um, Eskimos type people, and it was usually filled. Uh, here's something we may uh, not agree with some of their method methodology, um, but originally, at least in Greenland, they had tried to um, talk about the holiness of God, the existence of God to the people. They called uh, the people in Greenland to obey God's laws and they were hoping that by laying the foundation of the Old Testament, they would be able to uh, bring the gospel to them, which is considered to be, you know, good missiology. Uh, but they couldn't get the people to listen. But as soon as they decided to preach Christ and nothing but him and him crucified, they, they began to see a difference. Uh, it reached the hearts of the people somehow, the love of Christ with astonishing effects. And I'm going to quote now from um, Peter Hoover's book. I think it's chapter 12. Uh, they began to turn toward God and their neighbors after they began to directly preach Christ. And so powerfully did conviction fall on the Greenlanders after 1739 that one worker reported people trembling like frightened deer in their meetings, bursting out in tears and running away to weep. And at last, a Christian community began to take shape around the brothers' first miserable settlement. And uh, then, yes, there were maybe 300 people gathering on the Lord's Day in Greenland in 17, uh, what year was that? 39. So, yes, they, they were compelled. So now let's come to motivation. What motivated these people? And I pondered on this quite a bit. And obviously, um, hundreds, maybe thousands of them were sent out from, from their communities there in central Germany all around the world, to all these countries, what motivated them? As I pondered it, I don't see how it could have been just a sense of duty. And I don't know that it was uh, people getting excited about a missionary enterprise per se, but it seems what these people had 
in the early days at least, was an extraordinary devotion to the person of Christ. They loved him. They just loved him. And they were devoted to him. And this was not only uh, people's personal experience, but it was a corporate experience. And uh, an early Moravian pilgrim to the West Indies wrote that the Methodists' way of converting people is to shake them over hell, but of the loving Jesus, one hears very little. They teach that one must be holy for God to accept us. In contrast, the brothers at Hernhut wrote in 1739, our plan of action as a church is to aim for the heart at once. We attempt to bring all people to a knowledge of Jesus, the crucified one in their hearts, and to see the value of his wounds as the most important thing, so that it may remain their motivation from that point on for the rest of their lives. I think that does bring us to the heart of their understanding of the gospel. They, um, these Moravians, it seems they saw themselves as little and sinful-like. Now, this isn't exactly correct theology either, I know. But they considered themselves as very little and with a tendency to sin. But that didn't discourage them. It reminds me of a, of the story of uh, Anna in The Martyr's Mirror, which has inspired me many times. Here was a, a young woman who, with her husband, was put in prison. They were both imprisoned for their faith. And as you read the story, you get the idea that they'd been married six or seven months but they already had a child. So you understand what that meant. They apparently were involved in an immoral relationship before they were married. But now these people are in prison and she has already, her husband has already lost his head and she is two or three weeks away from being executed herself for her faith. And here's what she said when someone asked her about her faith and her belief and how she can uh, live with such um, heretical ideas. And her cheerful response was, she said, yes, I know. Anna said, I know I fall short in everything, but Jesus died for that in which I fall short. And so she had this cheerful, almost cheerful evaluation of her personal weaknesses and her sins, but she put her faith in the one who can take care of those sins. And it seems as though these Moravian people lived with that kind of tension. Um, I don't know if they thought of themselves as saints, even though we know they, they, they must have been. Uh, they thought of themselves as little children um, and as, as even little worms in the wounds of the side of Christ. Now, I have to go on and say that uh, this idea, they really went into it deeply, and eventually it led them astray into a false concept of the blood of Christ, which they then pulled back from. Um, but it seems as though what motivated them in the early days was this, this idea of seeing themselves as unworthy, yes, as still 
somewhat sinful, with sinful tendencies, the flesh. They recognize their weakness, but they turned to the, the, the one who could save them. And they worshiped him as a community. And, oh, they cultivated a devotion to Christ. A high view of the cross, a sense of their own littleness and sinfulness, coupled with the high view of the cross, Jesus' blood and sacrifice. What can we learn from this movement? I don't think we should try to replicate the movement to organize something like that. I don't think that would ever work because they didn't try to organize uh, their mission movement here at the beginning. They somehow found Christ together. They yielded to him. <clears throat> he came to be among them and they saw themselves for who they really were desperately in need of his love and his love came and filled them. And I guess that's what, um, as I um, considered their story again, I was so drawn to want what they have. In fact, I woke up at two o'clock this morning and I just couldn't get back to sleep. So overwhelmed with the love that they had for the Savior and desiring the same thing. And so that's kind of the end of my talk here. So maybe we can open it up for questions or uh, any comments. Brother Brian, do you want to take it on from here? Or how does this work? Yes. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. Thank you so much, Brother Ken. I found my heart touched as well by this, this incredible love they had for Jesus and desire that deeply in my life and was challenged by your conclusions that something, something like this is, you know, to try to strategize and arrange it um, is, is foolish. Um, but to press into Christ and allow him through his spirit and his life to propel us forward, I think is a beautiful call. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I learned some things I didn't know. Also was challenged with how they brought heaven to earth. <laughs> so, you know, out of, you know, out of brokenness came these flourishing places and that's beautiful. Um but, you know, as you mentioned, um, they had their challenges <laughs> as well. So, um, yeah, that's just a reality, of course. Yeah, so does anybody have a question, a thought for, for our brother? Yes, I have a question. Uh, <clears throat> brother Miller, would you spell for me the, uh, the uh, location for that massacre? and maybe offer just a few brief details? Sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, G-N-A-D-E-N. Gnaden Hutten, H-U-T-E-N. Or it would mean hut of grace or house of grace. It's in uh, Eastern Gnadenhuden. If you Google it, there is a village by that name in eastern Ohio, which was established by the Moravians. Uh, but the original uh, village is, um, well, now, I, I don't, I'm not sure if the present day village was established by the Moravians, but the original village is not far away. And they've built a, a cabin there now, I think, and a Cooper house, a coopery. 
and there's a monument there, uh, a 35 foot high, um, like, um, what do you call them? Um, sorry, my um, laptop fell off the box. I have it on on top of the washer. <laughs> Am I still on? You're still on. <laughs> okay, they have a 35 foot um, like tower thing there uh, commemorating the massacre. And there is a burial mound there still today where the remains of those Indians were gathered and buried. What year was that? That was uh, 1782. Thank you. Do they still do the drama, Trumpet in the Land, which uh, gives you the, uh, the story in a dramatic form? You know, I don't know that, Brother John. Ken. I was interested in your comment at the beginning about their connection with the Waldensians. Uh, it's interesting, they reached back over the Anabaptists to the Waldensians for their beginnings, but it's been too long since I studied it. Could you give us a little bit about that connection? I, I know uh, they, one of their first elders was ordained by a Waldensian bishop. I do know that. Mm. Anabaptists have never been able to claim a connection with the Waldensians, but the Moravians do. Interesting. John, I can't put those details together in my mind. It's kind of vague. Well, when I was at Tura Police, which is the headquarters of the Waldensian Church in Northern Italy, after the uh, presentation, I asked uh, the guy that gave this story. I said, when they joined the Reformation, they gave up their non-resistance. Well, they pretty much gave up their entire theology and became Reformed theologians. Mm -hmm. But I know there was a group who had disagreed with that merger and so I asked the guide, I said, what happened to those uh, non-resistant Waldensians that did not go along with the merger? And he said he wasn't sure, but he thought they joined the uh, Hussites. How about which that? Which would have been the old, the old uh, Unitus Fratrum, the old right, uh, right. Moravian church. Yeah, I think and it so was. <laughs> I gave that at a public meeting one time that I, I wasn't sure what happened after that. And Peter Hoover uh said that these people that went to Hernhut, uh, see what happened was after the uh, uh, 30 year war at the Peace of Westphalia, when neither the Catholics nor the uh, Protestants had a victory, they sat down and divided up Europe and decided which countries would be Catholic, which territories would be uh, Protestant. And the area where this non-resistant group was, uh, which would have been, uh, I can't think of his name right now, uh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, that went to the Catholics, and he fled up across the mountains uh, and, and left uh, Moravia. But uh, Peter Hoover claims that the, the Waldensians uh, that joined the Hussites were some of the people that left and went to Hernhut. And so that, I think that's where the connection is. That's the connection. You're right. Mm -hmm. that's, how he, that's how he establishes it. Mm -hmm. John Amos Comenius was the last bishop of that old Hussite church that uh, fell into that Roman Catholic territory. And he's an interesting person too. I ran into him at Shippensburg University as the father of modern education. What they don't tell you is he had a vision for bringing Christian education to the whole world and wrote a curriculum to do it. And I think that also was part of this vision that got carried up into Germany. I mean, the connections of what made up that original group are very interesting. Uh, you have Waldensian uh, influence, you have John Amos Comenius, the educator, uh, you have uh, 
Count von Sinzendorf, who was educated in the school of August Frank at Halle, Germany, that sent out, that was a mission school. So you had all that coming together, uh, and it, uh, somebody should write a book sometime to explain all the roots that uh, made up this unique group. Excellent. Brother Ken, thanks a lot for sharing. I really, it was really inspiring hearing that story. Um, just your thoughts there on Mora the Moravians. One thing that I have thought about, and I wonder if you have any comment on it, so the Moravians, from what I have heard, I, I don't haven't read a lot, but they almost exclusively referred to Jesus as the Lamb, and so they took that characterization of him as the Lamb, which actually isn't a real common biblical theme. It, it does show up, you know. John saw Jesus coming, and with, and he told his disciples, "Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world." And then I think Peter talks about the Lamb, and then Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb as well again. Do you think that that emphasis on that, um, <clears throat> I mean, could you say part of Jesus' character or that revelation or way of, way of characterizing him had anything to do with the, some of the, the issues that showed up later on in the Moravian theology and practice? Well, I think that's probably true. Uh, I think it contributed both to their amazing uh, zeal and love for people, the world, as well as then in its excess contributed to, to their weird veering off into, you know, worshiping the wounds and blood of Christ in a really unbiblical way. But they did see Jesus as the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they saw him very clearly as, as the one who can atone for our sins. And they went right to the core of the, of the matter and preached him crucified as the sacrificial lamb. So I think that they appealed to his sacrifice for the human race as, as, um, as the answer to everything. And somehow they presented him in such a winsome way that it broke the hearts, of, it broke their own hearts and the hearts of the people they were trying to minister. So, Maybe it's a motif we, sh we should look at and seek to um, you know, have impressed on our own hearts a little more because it seemed as though presenting Christ as, a, as the sacrificial lamb was, was certainly at the very heart of what they believed, for better or for, for worse. Wasn't that motif on everything they published, I think? Yeah, yes, the symbol is the, yeah, you have it on the front of uh, the, the, the cover page of Peter's book, the symbol of the lamb. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that, Brother Peter? I mean, Brother John, should, uh, was that a, you know, it, it is a, a, a New Testament um, theme or a focus uh, somewhat, but it's not one of the, I mean, probably the major theme is Christ as Savior or King. Or teacher, but not so much the motif of the lamb. What do you think about emphasizing that? Well, I, I don't see any problem with it. Uh, I, I think the genius of it was that he, Jesus became their number one priority, which is the essence of worship. Uh, most people say that they worship Christ, but if you're around them, you don't hear much about it. Uh, you hear about their business, you hear about their vacation, you hear about 
uh, everything else in their life, their fishing or their hunting or whatever, they get real passionate about all of that. These people were passionate about Jesus. And if you were around them, that's, that's basically what you got that uh, Jesus was their consuming focus. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem with Christianity, that he is not. Mm-hmm. And wherever he is, people truly worship him and they, they truly are transformed by him. Mm-hmm. But what their, their worship wasn't just um, the, the a, a, a sweet kind of, you know, fluffy worship. What am I trying to say? That was emotional and, and in a meeting somewhere, but their, their worship led them to great sacrifice and suffering, which, which is at the heart of um, authentic faith. So here's where they set the example of, of true devotion, I think. I mean, the Mennonites tend to denigrate the pietists, uh, but this is pietism at its best. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and it, it, you know, <laughs> the, the bane of pietism, everybody says, is individualism. Well, these people lived in full community like the Hutterites, and that's not individualism. Right. Uh, and so often what the Mennonites do is they compare the best of Anabaptism with the worst of um, with uh, uh, pietism. And pietism did have in it that individualistic idea. Uh, you could be a Lutheran, you could be a Catholic, and you could just be an individual worshiper and, and pietistic believer. Uh, and many of them never left the churches like the Wesleys. The Wesleys remained Church of England. They, they were true pietists. I mean, it's, the, the idea of the pietists was the church within the church. You, you could be a little group of people uh, within a larger group, and you didn't leave to form your own group. And I'm not sure... The Wesleys didn't leave, and neither did the Moravians, but they, they in essence, did form separate communities, whether they wanted to admit it, admit it or not. Could uh, you give us a definition of pietism? Pietism is just simply uh, a focus on Jesus and a, an inner warmth and devotion to Christ. It, it, it does have sort of an individualistic flavor to it. Um, but what uh, the Mennonites do is they take pietism when it had degenerated into an individualism, and that's the picture they give you of pietism. And then they give this this picture of the ideal Anabaptism, and that's not fair. That's not that's not comparing oranges and uh, and oranges. That's comparing uh, <laughs> two different things. Uh, in order, if you're going to compare the worst of pietism, then go find the darkest Amish community that you can find where there's hardly any Christianity at all. And then maybe you have a comparison there. But if you compare the best of Anabaptism with the best of pietism, there just isn't too much difference in the way they actually live. Yeah, that's, that's a good, uh, good thought there, John. I would have felt the same way about the Moravians at their best. My introduction to the term of pietism came from D. James Kennedy, who I used to watch occasionally on TV. And uh, this was in the context of the controversy over uh, abortion. And uh, there there was a group uh, of people who considered uh, it uh, improper and unnecessary to get involved in public affairs until and they considered themselves pietistic uh, until uh, the uh, abortion issue came to the fore. And then they said, well, we've got to get involved. So uh, maybe you could give me a uh, perspective on that. 
uh, that perhaps there, as I'm fond of saying, there's pietism and then there's pietism. Uh, are we, do we have an equivocation going on here or, or is there a closer relationship? Well, the, the uh, spectrum of pietism is, is from the most conservative to the most liberal, just like almost any group. So you can take your pick as to what you want to call pietism. And you had mentioned something about uh, not having much interaction between uh, Anabaptists and Moravians. The John L. Ruth uh, book, uh, The Earth is the Lord, there's a story in there of an early uh, Moravian missionary to America visiting one of the earliest uh, bishops among the Mennonites, is it Benedict Rechbu or someone? And uh, the, the Moravian man shows up right during wheat harvest and is a little put out that uh, the Anabaptists aren't more into talking about the Christian life and things like that. Well, at the same time, this bishop takes an entire afternoon off to go around with him visiting other people. So I, reading this, I was just struck by the different expectations there that the, the fact that this farmer takes a, a day off or half a day during wheat harvest seems kind of sacrificial and heroic and all to me. Whereas the Moravian man was thinking that, oh, well, he's just consumed with his farming and business and all. There's a few other stories in there too about, uh, I think there were a, a few uh, Mennonites that had joined the Moravian movement, just like, you know, you see it again with the brethren and, you know, it's that the same old thing where you have the well-established uh, community and a revival movement comes along and everyone, there are certain people go, ooh, this looks way more interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's just a pattern that keeps repeating. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The Lombok family among the old order of Mennonites, they, they were Moravians that joined the Mennonites. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. Well, what happened was that the Moravians had this vision of uniting all the people, and they called this meeting in Pennsylvania, uh, and they invited the Mennonites, and I think they went to the first meeting, but they saw Unitarians there, they saw all kinds of people there that uh, the Moravians were willing to unite with that they weren't they weren't happy about and so they refused to meet with them after that and, and that's why the Moravians then had such a negative view about the Mennonites. Mm -hmm. You know something about I, I remember something about um, the conflict with uh, the, the English evangelist George is it Whitefield? Um, he had an, an estate that he wanted to um, establish a university or something on and the Moravians ended up then parting ways with him and then eventually buying his estate I think well he, he was a Calvinist yes that's right that's where the disagreement came in mm -hmm. that's where he disagreed with John Wesley too mm -hmm. but uh, Whitfield died before Wesley and Wesley actually preached his funeral sermon and somebody asked Wesley, do you think you'll see Whitfield in heaven? And he said, no. He said, he'll be so near the throne and I'll be so far away, I won't see him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, wow. That was, a, that was a good good interaction there. Very, very good. Um, any, any other questions? Yeah, I think we're about five 
uh, seven minutes after seven here. So we should be wrapping this up here right shortly, but any other burning questions? So, um, Brother Ken, you mentioned the resource. Was it Behold the Lamb? So is it was called by Peter Huber? That's right. Um, I think we might drop that link on here afterwards. Uh, Brother Jundi, any other resources for the Moravians at all that you would suggest? That's probably the best one. Okay. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I find it really intriguing that that there wasn't a, a closer connection to the Anabaptists. And Brother Ken, you preached a message earlier this year at, at an event that I was at on the, the Pilgrim Church, a disciple-making community. And you talked about how the Anabaptists were the first missionary movement out of the Reformation. Yes. And I found that really interesting, which, you know, here we are, well, maybe 200, 225 years before this um, yeah, I, I just, I find it just amazing. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing, Brother Ken, this morning, for challenging us and for pointing us towards towards this, the Lamb of God, um, this, uh, the one who can empower us mm -hmm. to be his presence in the world today, in our communities. Definitely a, such a incredible privilege to, to represent Christ uh, through our churches and, and individually. And um, may we all seek that that uh, that intimate relationship with with Jesus. For sure, He desires that. And uh, mm -hmm. we think of the, the incredible message that came this time of the year. We think about that maybe more more specifically, but the idea of um, of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. What a what an incredible privilege we have to to bring that to earth. We get to participate in that mission of. of sharing that peace and that goodwill um, to, to, to men around us today. So may God bless uh, each, each one of you in that. Um, Brother John D., could you close some prayer, please? Father, we thank you this morning that all the kingdoms of this world perish except your kingdom. Mm -hmm. And we thank you, Lord, that it, it's still alive and well Amen. Uh, in many local situations throughout the world. Yes. And we just pray today for that kingdom. We pray, Lord, that <clears throat> your people would drive back the darkness in the communities where they are and would demonstrate what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed the king mm -hmm. in little communities of faith mm -hmm. that uh, live out the beautiful, uh, uh, dynamic uh, realities of the gospel. And mm -hmm. uh, I thank you for the Moravians and their wonderful uh, legacy. Uh, that they've left. I uh, thank you also for the Waldensians. I thank you for these courageous groups that yeah. kept the gospel alive through tremendous times of persecution. Mm -hmm. I thank you for Brother Ken uh, and the witness he's been and the blessing he's been mm -hmm. to all of us. Mm -hmm. Help us today, oh God, to put Jesus first, not just in words, That's right. but in the way we live, in That's the way we talk, the way we act, our passion. I pray, Lord, that people yes, would God. see Jesus as the number one focus of our lives. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, God, God bless you, um, each one of you. Next week, Lord willing, here on Strength to Strength, um, Brother John D is going to be um, sharing, um, talking, about, talking about the Lord's Prayer and what we can learn from it. Uh, so we'll, we'll look forward to that. So God bless you, Brother John, as you prepare for that. Grace and peace to each one of you. Goodbye.
Thank you, brothers. Goodbye. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.